Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here is your host, Sarah Blackhurst. Hi, welcome back to Action 22's Making Action Happen. We are excited for our show today. We've got a couple of, or well, we've got three really great guests. Um, we're going to dive right into it. I want to introduce um, you to Paul Hendrickson, and then after we hear from Paul, we're going to talk with Sean Martini from Colorado Farm Bureau. He's going to visit with us a little bit about uh, an interesting initiative in Colorado that would introduce additional wolves. Uh, into public lands here, um, and it's on the ballot. And then he's also going to talk to us a little bit about some trade negotiations that are going on with the UK. Um, and last, we'll hear from Kevin Wilkins, who is the executive director for San Luis Valley Resource Development Group, and talk a little bit about what we're trying to accomplish with a regional approach to economic development. But first, I'm sitting here with my good friend, Paul Hendrickson. Paul is a, a bit of an entrepreneur, um, but uh, he's an IT uh, specialist and uh, he has a pretty interesting background. He is a, an army veteran. Um, and when he finished uh, with his service, he got a degree um, here and then started his own um, IT tech business. Uh, a few years ago, or about a year ago or so now, he sold um, his company to uh, CMS IP Technologies. Um, so, Paul, I just want to talk, before we get into um, CMS IP Technologies, I want to talk a little bit about your approach um, on business because you first started as a veteran and you saw, and you had a skill set that was a little bit difficult for civilians to wrap their brain around. So the whole idea of you starting an IT uh, consulting business came from this idea. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was a dream that was dreamt up on a cot in Afghanistan and living the American dream of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness and starting a business. And um, I found myself to be a better IT guy than a business owner. Um, and <laughs> when I uh, when I was approached by US Connect Holdings, uh, Miss Rand, my CEO and Derek Bell, my president, uh, to be acquired, I I wanted to jump on it. One because of their their uh, breadth of knowledge and uh, the resources that they had at their fingertips, and how I can move forward in the industry and help leverage U.S. Connect's uh, power to really expand our competency out nationwide. So U.S. Uh, Connect is an interesting. It's a nationwide company, um, and what they've done is they've acquired some of these smaller um, IT businesses. Rural. Um, yeah. Rural. And so they've really done an amazing job in that space. And it's not one that a lot of companies want to go after because they just don't know how to do the, how to work in the rural space, number one. And they don't think they're going to get enough return on investment. So this is kind of a cool concept that they've done. Um, they also own another Action 22 member, um, Rye Telephone Company. Um, but they really sort of cater to that rural space. So how's it different to, to work within that rural space? Well, one, it's a, it's a niche that not many people want to go after because like you said, it's a, it's cost prohibitive in many cases, but um, they have the ability to provide fiber to the home in, in rural places like Rye um, and then our other rural areas in, in Texas, uh, Georgia, um, all the way out through the Eastern seaboard. So it's really cool to see that they bring a technology that normally you would never get unless you're in the metropolitan areas. Right. Well, we have some of the best, um, because of them, we have some of the best um, 
internet service anywhere in the country because we have fiber directly to the home, which is a huge, huge deal. Darn right. So what do you do specifically with CMS? So CMS is the managed services department of U.S. Connect Holdings. Um, We are the specialists that can bring outsourced IT or um, specialized IT skill sets to a business. Um, Our value prop is that you get the quality engineer that you normally would be paying primo dollar for to keep employed. So as a managed service provider, we're a small fraction of your monthly overall costs and we help maintain your infrastructure so you could focus on business. So I rely heavily on you for all my IT support for all of that sort of thing. I do not know what and have any idea what managed services are. <laughs> managed services uh, would be your IT department. We become that IT department. We can either work right alongside your current IT uh, where they provide maybe a level one help desk and we're that tier level two and three, or we could be all one, two and three of it. Um, we could even outsource it in a way that you take your IT out of the picture from your office and we provide just the computers on site and your infrastructure is hosted elsewhere in a hybrid cloud model or all the way up in the cloud as a cloud service provider. So our competency and our skill sets are wide and and broad and the 104 employees that I work with and alongside have everything from the ability to splice fiber into a home and run it hundreds of miles up through rural Colorado and, and, and beyond all the way to uh, tenured guys like Derek Bell, my president, who's been around since 1986, who knows what it is to be an IT guy from the ground up. I'm sure he really appreciates you letting everybody know how old he is there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so this is actually a great model for these smaller, closely held rural businesses they have. I mean, that's a, a great option for them. Not only does it give them that next level but of, of service, but really helps uh, on a lot of cost savings, I would imagine. It, it is. And in, in, in though we don't take a political stance in any facet, we stay closely tied to policy like the high cost funds and the broadband expansion, which obviously my uh, operations officer, uh, David Shipley, really pays attention to, along with Ms. Rand when they visit D.C. So it's near and dear to our heart. And we see and we service school districts here in Colorado and uh, out in the San Luis and uh, Alamosa area that really are underserved, um, I think forgotten in many cases. Um, And just getting Internet during this COVID crisis to students who live 50 miles outside of the school's limits, uh, who can't get solid internet access, even through the hotspots that some of these other companies have provided at no cost. I mean, they serve them no good because there is no cell reception where they're at. Right. So we're coming up with clever solutions to provide the schools the means of access to service their students and helping them tell their story and helping to nurture the technology that the students deserve. Um, um, one of our school districts uh, approached us just this week about working with History Colorado and starting to uh, develop a virtual reality, virtual, um, uh, how do you, uh, like a, when they go out on field trips uh, to, oh, yeah. to really do a virtual reality, lessons learned, being able to see the areas that they live in and the history behind them. Because San Luis is one of the first cities and well, towns in Colorado. So they have a lot of history there. So History Colorado is going to start pouring quite a bit of time and resources into helping those kids get those get access to that technology, which means that as an IT service provider on a budget, we have to provide them with the technologies and, and resources that they could use to best serve their students. So it's a, it's a shocking reality that even in this day and age, there's so many rural communities in the U.S. that are 
underserved or not served at all as far as broadband goes and how they have the access. Yes. And I think that's really become um, even more apparent. And we've had lots of discussions with um, with both Senator Bennett, Senator Gardner, um, with, uh, with Scott Tipton, um, with uh, a lot of our state representatives. And Dave, I'm glad you brought up David Shipley because he is on the, on the broadband board yes. um, and on that, uh, those funds that are dedicated to try to do that. But still, it's, it's still a problem and it's still going on. And I think we saw even more, um, it's more, not, I don't think it's more prevalent, but it's more pressing than ever before with COVID. Um, but you guys don't just serve um, school districts. You have, you oh, yes. do, I mean, it's a lot of, a lot besides Businesses, that. small and large, yeah. you know, from the small mom and pa all the way up to the big oil refineries. I mean, we, we could service anybody. Um, I always like to say we could do anything from accessories to x-rays and that's no joke. I mean, we really can. And I take a lot of pride in my team because of that. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm just curious, was there anything um, during this, the, the COVID crisis and, and you guys were working even harder than ever. I know. Um, is there anything that you learned or discovered that it shocked even you? Uh, the, the need for laptops uh, was insane. Um, we, you would think that it's just something you can go to Best Buy and grab with. Nope. They're out too. Um, our large distributors. Nope. They're out back ordered. You get to be 300 available and we go to put our order in and they're gone just like that. So, um, our school districts, uh, especially, uh, were struggling because the kids had just Chromebooks. Well, in a lot of cases, you need the Windows-based laptops to be able to do some of the other features and applications that are available for for learning, uh, because it's not all web-based sometimes. So um, it's pretty important to uh, recognize the trend in technology requirements and be able to predict that in the future. Yeah. So we have a plan for that and we have been working uh, diligently on that and just kind of stocking up as needed because if we do get locked down again, CMS is gonna have some sort of solution for you to keep your business rolling. Right. Um, so next week you're gonna be at the um, annual meeting. We're, we're doing something kind of cool this year. We haven't tried this before, but we're gonna do it this year to see how it works. But for this effort, to move toward a more regional approach to economic development. We're doing a project expo and you're going to be there next week um, with, tell us everybody what you're, what you're going to be presenting. Well, um, I, I'd like to pick on San Luis again, partly because they need it so bad, but we're looking at broadening their internal network to make it a wide scaled network for the students and only the students that access. It will be publicly accessible only by those students so that they could still do the curriculum that they need. Um, and the school will be the one that hosts it, manages it, and overall owns it. So that way we're not competing. We're not looking to compete in any way with the, the local provider in the area. Uh, we're looking to obviously do some work with them and use them as a partner in this. But overall, our goal is to service the students and the, and the, and the faculty and staff to allow them to work remote in a safe environment. Nice, nice. Well, Paul, thanks for coming on today. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, you and I have talked quite a bit about the project down in Centen at Centennial School District in, in San Luis, um, Colorado. Um, the superintendent down there is working really hard to make yeah, more. Mr. Milstry, yeah. yeah, he's he's a sweet, sweet guy and he's working so hard. Um, but you've done a lot to bring um, attention to that issue. And so we appreciate that. And we appreciate um, all you're doing for our rural communities. Um, next, we're gonna talk to, um, Sean Martini. Sean is the, 
Vice President of Legislative Affairs for Colorado Farm Bureau. Um, Sean is uh, super cool. Like nobody's as cool as Sean, not even Sean Martini. But uh, we're, I oh, first boy. wanted to, <laughs> well, nobody's huh. as cool as Sean Martini. Can't um, see eyes roll on the radio. I know, I know. That's, we all have a face for radio right this second. So um, Sean, let's talk a little, <laughs> and I'm sorry to laugh about this because um, You're going to hear my bias, and I apologize to our listeners. You're going to hear my bias on this particular issue. Um, Introducing more wolves into Colorado. How did this happen? You can have bias on this, Sarah. You're not a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) That's not the goal here, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. This is the most ridiculous, one of the more ridiculous things um, that we've seen in a long time. And they started really early. You guys have been fighting this for about a year now. So how did this all start? How did this happen? Yeah, they started really early. Uh, the proponents of, of Proposition 114, which is an initiative that would forcibly introduce wolves into the state of Colorado, uh, only on the western slope. Uh, were, they, they, it's a citizen initiative uh, that would um, change state statute uh, to uh, force introduction of wolves into the state. Uh, and they started gathering signatures on this uh, pretty much right after um, the the uh, the last election. Uh, it was very, very, very early in 2019 uh, when they started gathering and they made the ballot in January in Colorado Farm Bureau, along with a, a whole other group of uh, agriculture and business organizations came in and started Colorado's Protecting Wildlife, which is the issue committee, uh, to oppose Proposition 114 and ask voters to vote no in November. So, from the, I think from the onset, I was super curious as to why they would want to do this. Because I, I say, and you can't say it, but I'll say it, it's introducing additional wolves into Colorado. So, um, wolves are already here, correct? I mean, I didn't just make that up. No, you didn't make it up. Uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife has identified a pack in Moffat County. They've identified the fact that that pack is breeding and reproducing. They've seen pups. Uh, and the, the agency gets more than 100 reports of wolf sightings around the state every year. You talk to anybody on the Western Slope, if they haven't seen wolves or wolf sign, uh, they have uh, talked to somebody uh, who has or talked to somebody who's talked to somebody who has. They are, are definitely here and only in 2020, with the pig of a year that we're having this year, would Colorado voters be faced with a ballot initiative that would spend taxpayer dollars to introduce a species that we already have in the state. So speaking of the ballot, there is so much on the ballot and there's several really important things on this ballot. Um, I feel like it's another pollution of the ballot. It's going to be, I don't know. It's, it's I like asking- the term pollution of the ballot. It's, it's everything that is wrong with the way ballot initiatives work in the state of Colorado. It, it pits the front range against the Western Slope uh, because folks on the front range are going to be the ones who, who decide this issue with the ballot box. And should it pass, uh, they will be able to pat themselves on the back and feel good uh, about being an environmentalist for the day and then never have to deal with any of the consequences associated with what's going to happen because it's all going to take place on the Western Slope. So let's talk um, about the environmentalist thing for just a second. And you've already heard me because you and I have talked about this. Um, my kid is a, um, he, he likes to think of himself as a, a bit of a, a, a junior environmentalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he first heard this, he was really upset about it. And he kept talking about it over and over again. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Finally, I stopped and asked him why they would do that. 
uh, what, like, what was he so upset? Like, what did he see the problem was? And what he said is, what about these wolves? Where are they going to get these wolves? Why are they taking them out of their environment um, and putting them into a new environment that is already stressed with, uh, with a, um, a drought and with constant fires and that whole thing? What possible rationalization, he didn't use the word rationalization, I think he may have used a bad word, but what possible rationalization could they have to do that to these wolves? So I don't understand what the rationale is about how this would help the environment. Well, it's it, it's coming, the, you know, the, the proponents of the initiative are, you know, would think of themselves, quote unquote, as environmentalists or conservationists, and, and that's fine. But that's not what's actually behind the motive for doing this. It's it's purely political, right? Um, there There's no... Um, good environmental science that says introducing a species via the ballot box for the first time ever anywhere is a good idea. It's a really bad idea. And that's why it's never been done before, because it completely short circuits the process that we typically go through to make these kinds of decisions. The experts at Colorado Parks and Wildlife are cut out of the process. Uh, They're not able to weigh in because they're a state agency. We know in the past, four separate times as as early as 2016, or as recently as 2016, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission has looked at the issue and said, no, it's not good for Colorado for a number of different reasons. And to your son's concern, it's concern for the wolves themselves uh, and the success of the species, um, essentially trying to make a, a square peg fit into a round hole, introducing a species that's not going to be successful here necessarily, uh, but also the, the impacts to other species in the state of Colorado. We're, we're below target in a number of game management units in the state on elk and deer. Um, yeah. You know, we can't weigh what that's going to do in this situation because we're not given the opportunity because it's forced through the ballot. You know, we can't weigh what the impacts might be to the moose in Colorado that Colorado Parks and Wildlife has been clawing their way back to to good population levels over the last couple of decades in this state. And so, I mean, everybody is really threatened by this because it's not how we manage wildlife, not only in Colorado, but across the country. Um, It's just not the way we do it. And and there's a reason we do it the way we do it. And it's not via the ballot box. Well, it's because that's not, it's taken it out of the hands of the scientists. It's, these are the people who, these are biologists. They're, they're actually environmental scientists and you want to do it by the ballot measure. It just doesn't make sense to me, but also the impact on the existing population of wolves. You're introducing an invasive species, and I don't know how you define it any other way. So I'm really surprised by that. So let me ask you one more question along that vein, and then I want to change subjects because um, I was in on a really interesting call with you this week. Um, well, two questions. One, what is it going to cost the state of Colorado? Well, that's part of the problem. Um, we don't really know. Um, the uh, Department of Parks and Wildlife put a guess Um, at a price tag of at least $6 million based on what's happened in other states uh, where the wolves have been introduced through the normal channels, I should say, um, in consultation with wildlife officials, both federal and state wildlife officials in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, those costs are significantly higher. Uh, Mm. And we would anticipate that to be the case here as well, just because of the complexities associated with introducing that species into a state that has three times the population of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming combined. Um, The proponents like to talk about the fact that, look, introduction was super successful in Yellowstone. um, And that may be the case. I don't know. I'm not a biologist enough uh, 
to know whether it was a good thing or not. Even if I concede that it was a good thing, the state, the national park, uh, Yellowstone National Park doesn't have skyscrapers in it. It doesn't exactly. have highways in it. It doesn't exactly. have mines and transmission lines and all the things that, that this species will run into in this state. Right. Uh, and so that really compares apples to oranges. And that's really the justification that the proponents use is, look, it was great in Yellowstone. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be good here too. Yeah. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. So I guess my last question is this, and this is what I'm really curious about. Um, who, uh, <laughs> who's funding this campaign? I mean, who is, who's behind this initiative? Like who's, yeah. who's paying for it? That's what I'd yeah. like to know. Yeah. I, I sort of hearken back for the days when environmental organizations actually use their donor money properly by doing actual conservation. And now they just run crazy ballot initiatives. Um, <laughs> it's, it's being funded by defenders of wildlife and the Sierra club, the tides foundation out of San Francisco, you know, kind of the, the standard folks that like to engage on these kinds of issues. Um, because again, it's less about environmentalism and conservation and more about politics. And, and that's that's what this issue is here. They're they're taking a what should be a, a very collaborative process based on the science, but also looking at other impacts that this kind of an action would have uh, on the economy and the communities and the character of our communities and the various constituencies within the state, um, and and asking voters to do their dirty work for them and force it into consideration and, and force wolves back onto the land without having all the information and being able to make an informed decision. I. Again, I have a hard time understanding the the rationale. I mean, honestly, they could do a, a better job raising funds and getting support of everybody if they were actually doing things that would be um, supportive of the environment. But this, I just don't see how this is on on any level. And I know that the pushback that you get is, oh, this is you know just a bunch of ranchers who are having a hard time with it. And I hope that everybody understands that this is not just a bunch of ranchers that have a hard time with it. This is this is just a re- ridiculous removal of science and scientists making decisions to put it in um, to the ballot measure. That's I just that's the only thing I see it as is that they don't like the science that they came up with, so they're gonna they're gonna re- try to rewrite it um, by putting it on a ballot. I don't know what else to say about it. Exactly. In, in this case, uh, wildlife experts and and the the the, the people who are tasked with balancing. Uh, all the varied interests and, and making a decision on what's best for Colorado and what's best for the species itself have said it's not a good idea and the proponents can't stomach that. And so they're going to do an end run around that process that's been working since the time of Teddy Roosevelt uh, and ask the voters to do it for them. And, and it's really a shame. And so that's why we're, we're asking voters, even if you like wolves, uh, you can be an environmentalist and vote no on Proposition 114. It's, it's not about disliking wolves. It's about saying no to a very improper prospect process um, and, and politicizing science. And, and it's about saying no to that. Uh, yeah. And we need to do this through the proper channels. I agree. I agree. Um, you're a little bit of a hero in the Blackhurst house, um, you and Chad uh, Vorthman, um, because you guys have been working so hard on this. Um, so uh, Tommy also wanted me to tell you that if at any time you'd like to have him discuss this issue with somebody, he would be happy to join you and, and, uh, um, express um, some of his feelings about it. So. Absolutely. We'll, we'll take him up on it. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so we had it. I was on a phone call with you um, earlier this week. It was a really, really interesting one um, about um, the UK um, and 
some of their investments in Colorado. Would you share a little bit about that and what's going on with those negotiations? I found this really fascinating. I don't know if anybody else will, but this is really some cool stuff that you have going on. Yeah, yeah. Foreign trade is is extremely important to the success or failure of production agriculture in Colorado and around the country. I like to say that, you know, really second only to the weather, uh, our farmers and ranchers are going to be successful based on whether or not we can access foreign markets uh, and be able to sell our product around the world and continue to feed the world as we have for the past few decades. But that really depends on on getting duty-free access to markets. Uh, and being able to to get food and commodities into those countries uh, in a way that that keeps food prices low uh, and allows consumers to to be able to access the superior product that we grow here in this country. Uh, and so to that end, we do a lot of work on on trade and market development. The United States is currently negotiating and working on a uh, a free trade agreement with the United Kingdom uh, that would be implemented when they leave uh, and execute what's called Brexit. Uh, and and leave uh, the umbrella of the European Union. Um, at that point, they're responsible for for doing their own uh, free trade agreements, uh, coming up with their own agriculture policies, the same way we have here uh, in this country, rather than being directed by uh, what's going on in Brussels. Uh, and so, the call you're referring to is. Uh, Colorado Farm Bureau and uh, the Markets Division at the Colorado Department of Agriculture uh, worked with the UK consul here in Denver uh, and brought in their consul general from uh, the office in Chicago uh, and a couple of folks from the United Kingdom Embassy in Washington, D.C. to give an update on how the negotiation rounds are going uh, between the U.S. and the U.K. on the free trade agreement. We just finished with round four. Uh, and they're getting uh, a lot of things checked off the list um, and, and coordinating on a few things uh, and also uh, starting to, to see where areas of, of divergence between the two sides are, are going to be. Uh, but uh, ultimately, we want to uh, work at, at Farm Bureau uh, to develop as many markets as possible. Uh, and, and that includes markets with friendly nations. Of course, we've got a special relationship with the United Kingdom, and we want to do everything we can right. to uh, bolster our relationship there and, and support producers in that country as well as ours. Um, we're going to go to a break in just a minute, but before we do, um, and I'm gonna, I want you to come back and talk a little bit about um, the future of ag um, in Colorado, but before we do, would you just um, explain uh, to our listeners, how big of an influence um, some of the UK businesses or how big of a presence some UK businesses have in Colorado right now, especially on the ag front? Yeah, they're they're really big. Um, it's less trade um, in goods with the United Kingdom and, and Colorado specifically and more trade and services. Uh, but the UK is by far the largest source of foreign direct investment uh, in Colorado companies and in our economy. Uh, they're responsible for well over a million jobs uh, and they really are a, a fantastic partner um, for Colorado businesses and industries uh, working with other, other nations abroad. So doing everything we can to ensure an ongoing free trade agreement with that country in order to ensure that uh, we don't have uh, artificial duties placed on, on services uh, and also providing additional opportunities to increase trade in goods is definitely going to be good for both folks on, across the pond and for uh, agriculture producers and the business community here in the state of Colorado. Yeah, I was really surprised. I had no idea. I think I heard on the call that there's something like 200 businesses um, that are uh, UK businesses that uh, uh, that are here in Colorado. Um, and they, for whatever reason, they're choosing Colorado. So I was thrilled and, and um, surprised to hear 
to hear that. Um, and that's huge. So I appreciate the work you um, are doing on that. When we come back from break, I would, if you wouldn't mind, I'm talking a little bit about uh, the landscape on the legislative side, especially with regard to um, agriculture in Colorado, that what we can expect this next season or this next, um, this next legislative session. Can you stick around and do that with us? Sure. Okay, great. Happy to. Um, so you're listening to Making That Action Happen on Voice America Network. Um, I'm Sarah Blackhurst, and we'll come back right after this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back. Um, we're still sitting here with Sean Martini, who is the Vice President of Legislative Affairs for Colorado Farm Bureau. Um before we continue our discussion, I want to also introduce Kevin Wilkins. Kevin Wilkins is the executive director for San Luis Valley Resource Development Group. Uh, they uh, work on um, different e- economic issues, uh, specifically in the San Luis Valley of Colorado. And it's a really cool opportunity to have both of these gentlemen sit down uh, and be talking today about some of these issues Uh we had a discussion a while back about really coming out of COVID, the need to have a strong strategy 
for not only economic recovery, but to take a regional approach to recovery and development for our entire region. And because we have such a strong uh, ag presence throughout the area, and especially in the San Luis Valley, it's a great opportunity to have Sean sitting here and discussing this. And so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit um, with Kevin first, and then we wanted to continue the discussion about foreign trade, the UK, what that's going to look like, because there's a whole lot of trade that goes on with goods out of the San Luis Valley. So Kevin, will you introduce your organization just a little bit more and then talk about why you think, especially now, there's such a need for this resource um, development, but a regional approach to economic development as well. Thanks, Sarah. You know, the the name San Luis Valley Development Resources Group is a long name, so we just go by DRG. not not to be confused with the notorious RBG, but we are we are DRG. Uh, it was interesting to hear Sean talk about the present the the importance of of, for, of exports in the in the UK market, and then foreign direct investments, because discussion of foreign direct investments also relates to target target areas where we can attract foreign direct investment to the region, and, and any in any particular parochial region is, is, is the, the, the smaller the region, the smaller the, the, the destination, the, the smaller the, the discussion. So our intent to use the Action 22 footprint to as an economic development planning region really makes sense and lends itself to Sean's discussion on, on attracting foreign direct investment out of the UK. So just out of curiosity, um, Sean, how is it that the UK got to be um, have such a strong footprint or such a strong presence in Colorado? You know, I don't necessarily know the history. Um, I think because we were uh, initially a financial hub uh, before the Great Recession, we're now a tech hub. We've got a well-educated workforce. Um, our economy is is broad and deep. Um, and we're not concentrated just in one sector, um, and especially on the finance side. You know, London is a global finance hub, uh, and and the fact that we share uh, a common language, uh, a special relationship, uh, just positions us very well uh, in order to have uh, a good relationships uh, with foreign partners, both on on goods trade, like we do with Canada and Mexico through uh, USMCA, uh, and with uh, the UK and and other governments around the world. Um, particularly on that side with foreign direct investment, it, it just makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's uh, uh, there's opportunities there and, and points of connection, um, and uh, and to the extent for for Colorado that we are uh, at least in the past we're a little bit more of a mid-sized city in the center of the country. Um, it th- that kind of investment from a foreign country registers a little bit higher than it might with some of the larger cities on the coast uh, in terms of of. Uh, who's investing and, and what countries around the world are engaging. So, Kevin, um, there was a little bit of, of, I think, worry and angst as we were having some um, trade war issues going on. How did that affect the San Luis Valley? You know, as, as agriculture goes, so does the San Luis Valley. So, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our commodities are, are primarily domestic consumption. So we were impacted, but probably not as severely as some of the areas, the more wheat and, and corn growing areas um, um, that, that have a, a more commoditized market to them. Um, so I would 
probably say that we fared better than the Eastern Plains, but we were still impacted. So for most people, they hear San Luis Valley and they think they think potatoes, but it's a lot more than that down there. What's, what else is happening on the ag front? We have, uh, we grow 100,000 pounds of mushrooms a week. We grow uh, barley. Most of Coors Premium Barley comes from here. We have a couple of malt operations that also use barley for the barley for the craft beer market. We're one of the few areas in the United States that can grow quinoa. Um, hemp is is uh, we're like ground zero for hemp here. We have uh, some pretty large hemp farms. So you know the the, the eighty two hundred square mile region of the San Luis Valley, albeit desert. Uh, has a lot of high value crops, and, and we don't forget alfalfa. Either that's a that's also a huge market. So, Sean, as far as uh, really expanding that foreign trade, or even the the export of to other states, of as far as ag and um, making Colorado a bigger ag producer, um, what do you see happening? What are the barriers on that? Um, how can we make that to expand a little bit more? You know, we really push everywhere we can uh, with partner organizations like Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Meat Export Federation and the U.S. Grains Council really working on uh, foreign market development uh, around the world. Um, You know, we're really pushing on opportunities in Southeast Asia right now, uh, which also comes with the geopolitical benefit of of cozying up to friends and neighbors in that region in an effort to push back against China's hegemony in the world uh, and also continuing to to bolster relationships uh, and increase cross-border flows on goods and especially agricultural goods into Canada and Mexico. Uh, Those two countries are the largest export markets for Colorado agricultural products and we want to continue uh, to ensure that that relationship stays in place and we we can uh, look for areas of growth there. Uh, And then, uh, you know, additional agreements that might be larger for other industries like financial services and technology and auto and those sorts of things, uh, but provide additional opportunities on the margin for agriculture and future expansion uh, as people on both sides start to figure things out, like with the agreement between the U.S. and the United Kingdom. So uh, we really want to do everything we can to to push those opportunities everywhere uh, and and work on uh, emerging opportunities with the idea that while they may not be really um, a a huge blowout for production agriculture and commodities trade at the start, uh, there's certainly opportunities to, to uh, to you know, uh, cement a deal, uh, initiate relationships, and start to potentially grow that more in the future. Right this second, what's the biggest barrier? Uh, you know, I, around the world, it's just the, the complex um, nature of negotiation, uh, negotiating trade agreements. Um, of course, there's been uh, some headbutting between the agriculture industry and the current administration in terms of its approach to global trade uh, and, and the impacts that, that the actions it has taken has had on agricultural trade, particularly with China, uh, but also the, the concerns about USMCA prior to that deal finally being ratified and cemented and inked. Um, but it, it's just, you, you can't take your foot off the gas. You constantly have to be looking for new partners and initiating negotiations so that uh, with the long lead time that is associated with negotiating these very complex deals, you can start to get them to fall into place uh, and wrap them up. As we have with the Trump administration on uh, Japan, uh, plus up in South Korea, uh, particularly for agricultural trade was really good. Uh, and now, uh, now working with the UK to cement a deal as well. 
Sarah, uh, this, this, is a, this is a good point of the importance of establishing local relationships in foreign markets. Uh, and this is, this, this is another way where, where if we expand our regionalism to, 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 so that we have more resources, the, the economic development community can take a more active role in working with, with, with uh, Farm Bureau and some of these others on, on orchestrated trade missions so that, so that the relationships outlast the political cycle. That's really, the, that's really what you're trying to create is something that would outlast the, um, the political cycle. I think... Um, without really saying it, that's one of the bigger barriers is is kind of every four years we're in a wait and see mode. Um, and these are things, decisions that are, are going to affect the next 10, um, 20, 30, next generation on some of these things. Um, there's a couple of issues I'd like to, both of you um, to weigh in on that I've been hearing a lot about, especially during COVID. Um, the first one is... Uh, the sort of the disconnect, especially with um, with uh, beef producers, but uh, the disconnect between producers and and um, those who package from uh, and and it's the huge cost. That it, there's just a big disassociation with that. So what a producer will get and what you're paying for in the store are vastly different. There's huge a huge gap there. Um, so can you talk a little bit, we ha I hear almost daily from some, one of our ag producers, um, and I know Sean, you hear about it all the time too, about how they're just getting killed on this issue. What are, what are you hearing? Is there any, is there any uh, hope at the end of the tunnel on this? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a difficult issue uh, because there's, there's a lot of policy prescriptions that would uh, make marginal improvements potentially um, in this uh, in this issue, um, but you know it's it, like so many things with commodities. It, it comes down to the supply chain, and and COVID was really the perfect storm, especially as it pertained to uh, to protein markets and and beef specifically. Um, when you looked at the very disparate impacts that not only COVID but the shutdowns. Uh, and then the resulting change in consumer purchasing behavior um, had on that industry. Um, we had, you know, the shutdown of restaurants, uh, which uh, precluded and essentially stopped the consumption of very high value cuts of beef that really return value to the farmer and rancher uh, right. growing that beef um, because so much of that is, is, is consumed at the restaurant level that went away in the span of about two weeks and produce uh, consumers sh shifted from spending about 45% of their food dollar in restaurants to spending about 90% of their food dollar at the grocery store. And right. when they're purchasing beef at the grocery store, of course, then you have the dynamic of, of uh, runs on, on the grocery store, everybody uh, buying up uh, more than they otherwise would. And so that tightened up supply uh, and drove up price. Even in the cuts of beef that are typically purchased at the grocery store, which are lower value and don't return as much value to anybody along the supply chain, not least of which the guy at the start of it, which is the cow-calf producer. Um, and that whipsawed around uh, a number of times during the COVID shutdown um, and really caused uh, a significant accordion effect throughout the supply chain. And the thing that we really learned was the, the critical node in that chain is beef processing uh, and yeah. the ability to continue to send fed and fat cattle in one side of that plant and have box beef come out ready for retail and restaurant purchase on the other side. If that shuts down, as, as happened in Greeley, um, that has repercussions 
emissions throughout the supply chain and the whole industry, and they're not really good for anybody. So did this issue just start with, um, with COVID or was it sort of already there? It was sort of already there, uh, but COVID definitely made it lay bare um, and and really pointed out some of the disparity there. The thing that it did, though, is as I, as I just mentioned, it really pointed out just how important processing capacity is to the success or failure of, of people up and down the supply chain and for consumers as well. We want to get them uh, as best a deal and as much value for their food dollar as we can possibly get them uh, while still ensuring that there is a, uh, a, a fair and and significant return for people up the value chain uh, and and further up the supply chain as well. Uh, ending, of course, with with uh, the folks who make up our membership, cow calf producers, right? Right. Um, and so we want to do everything we can to make sure that that uh, they see a, a return on their investment and and get a fair price for their product that they are working so hard to produce uh, in a safe and efficient manner. Kevin, Sarah, I think a positive thing that's going to come out of this sudden disruption uh, is, is, is an awareness of the fragility of that supply chain and, and, and an understanding uh, in the case of that, you know, it, you can't just shut down food production because it ta- there, there's a certain time, it, time frame it takes to grow an animal. There's a certain life cycle it takes to start a mushroom before it's harvested. If you if you have a sudden disruption of that, you still have to feed that animal. You right. still have you, you still have to water those crops. So so an, a consumer awareness of that is a good thing. And then and then just um, a, a an enlightenment on the differences between how we box, package, and deliver food service as compared to we, how do we box, package, and deliver to a retail market. Very much so. That's, and, and, that's and aligning a, those and, and trying to get better alignment between those two markets. Yeah, that's a key piece. It, it would have been one thing if we had COVID and a lot more people um, increasing their purchases outside at the at the retail counter outside of what we would normally uh, account for um, and and have in the retail supply chain it's one thing to have supply tighten up there but to have such significant slack on the food service side together is something I don't think we'd ever necessarily seen before and and to your point um, trying to uh, change equipment and deploy capital in a way that we can effectively use the excess supply that was in the food chain or I'm sorry the food services end of the chain uh, and redirect it to retail is is the key piece and and trying to do that quickly uh, was very clear that that's that's not the easiest thing that's for sure Will there ever be a back to normal on that on that side of it? Will there ever be, or is it everything we're just creating everything for a whole new world? We're going to get better at it, you know. And, and, and that's that's the thing. Even on the protein side, these these food processing systems are designed for a certain weight of carcass. So it's not like you can just get a bigger animal. It then then it won't it 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 it. it it then then you have system problems with it. So I think we're going to come out better because we're going to have we're going to be more aware and have sharper pencils. Sean. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, there's there's certainly changes that can be made. Um, we, we the the industry has learned a lot from this. Um, but as as we've started to open up again and restaurants have opened up and we've sort of returned to much more normal than it was previous, you've seen that play out in the market as well. Uh, supply has evened out. The supply chain has started working again, and prices have 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 returned to a more normal channel as a result. 
So, and, and we all honestly don't have time to fully do a deep dive on, on my next question, but I'd like you guys to both um, touch on this. I think um, one of the issues before COVID, and I think it's going to be even more of an issue now, um, is uh, seasonal workers, migrant workers, um, and how we, we do that. What needs to happen next on that? Because it wasn't, it wasn't working right before. Um, I don't know that it's working any better now. Um, is this an opportunity to to make that better? And if so, how do we make that better? Yeah, the uh, it's always a difficult issue because that's a that is another critical piece in our ability to make sure the supply chain runs right. Um, and and having producers here in the United States have access to uh, foreign labor uh, who want to come here and be able to earn a better wage than they might at home. Um, is is critical to the success of a, a number of significant um, uh, niche sectors within the agriculture industry. Um, there is a lot of our food that remains um, uh, handpicked um, and is high touch, uh, and and our producers have to have access to that labor force and able to make sure that it doesn't rot in the fields. Uh, right. So so we've got to figure that piece out on the policy front. How to make. Uh, one side of the aisle happy and the other side of the aisle happy so that agriculture doesn't keep getting caught in the middle with what they currently have, which is a program which is essentially unworkable uh, aside from a few uh, very specific areas where, where producers have been able to, to figure out how to navigate through the red tape uh, and all the barriers that are erected to them accessing that workforce in an efficient manner and try and make that process work a little bit better. Kevin, what do you think? You know, there's a, there's a seasonal nature to to uh, commercial agriculture, especially when it's done outdoors, um, and that means pe- workers have to migrate, and whether it's H2A migrating from another country and to do our seasonal work, and then migrating back home to do seasonal work, workers must migrate in order to do this this labor, and it is it is hard labor. Uh, I, th- I think I think compensation is fine. I think uh, treatment is is probably satisfactory, uh, but you're also going to see some innovation that comes comes along with this. We're seeing it in the leafy green market where they're moving to to indoor growing environments, which are found to be just as cost effective in many cases as growing it in, out outside. Uh, that can be done year round. That that is not that, that that's not seasonal. So there's going to be some some technology that will allow. Some commodities to maybe be to be less seasonal, and then you're going to be a move towards mechanization. Uh, I know from my work in Yuma, Arizona, that the lettuce industry is already looking at at if they can do some some lettuce varietals that are more uh, that are that are more suited to, towards mechanical harvesting. So you got you got you got two things going on with technology. Uh, will it ever replace uh, commercial agriculture? No, but I think it will. It, it will help flatten out some of the curves. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate you so much being on. I think this was a really great discussion. Um, I really hope uh, quite a few of our listeners um, will will uh, sort of share what's happening here um, and some great insights. I appreciate you so much. Um, when just the last few minutes of our show, um, I want to talk. I always like to talk a little bit about uh, how we make action happen, and and it's this was a great example today of how we have so many people in so many different arenas, but we're really working toward the same the same objective on a lot of these things. We want um, there to be a vibrant ag community, um, a vibrant economic community. Um, 
Next week, uh, we're gonna, our show is going to be um, live from the Action 22 annual meeting. Um, we're going to do two things. We're going to be doing a ballot measure forum, um, and then the next day we're going to be doing a project expo. And those pro- this project expo is going to be focusing on the different projects that are going on around the region that really will move the entire community toward economic development and economic health um, in that recovery piece. Um, Action 22 has always really enjoyed uh, a strong and um, very um, healthy working relationship with our executive branch. So I just wanted to tell you who actually is going to be at our meeting next week. Besides everybody who's registered and everybody who's um, coming, um, we're going to have Dave Young, who's the state Colorado State Treasurer, Phil Weiser, who is the AG, Senate President Leroy Garcia, and Jared Polis will all be there in person um, on one of those two days. Um, we have all the candidates sitting down and having uh, roundtable discussions with the people who are putting on or who are working on these projects. Um, from Senate District 35, um, Carlos Lopez and Cleve Simpson, um, they're both running for that space. Uh, we also have um, from House District 47, Bree Buente, sorry, Bree, it's Bree Buenteo and Stephanie Luck. From House District 46, John Ampler and Danae Escar. From House District 62, Donald Valdez and Logan Tiger. From House District 64, Richard Holtorf will be joining us. And um, from House District 65, Rod Pelton will be joining us. These are all the really incredible candidates. They're members of Action 22, um, and they're wanting to work with us to really lift together to bring our region and our state um, to where it needs and deserves to be. With that, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. Um, we had a great time with uh, with Paul Hendrickson, uh, CMS uh, Tech, IP Technologies, uh, with Sean Martini, the again, the super cool dude um, that he is from Colorado Farm Bureau and all the great work that the Farm Bureau does, um, and Kevin Wilkins from um, San Luis Valley Development Resource Group. I think I finally got it right that time. Thanks everybody so much for joining us. We hope you can join us next week where we are gonna be doing the show live. Um, We're gonna have Phil Weiser on for a few minutes who is the Colorado AG. Um, He's done some incredible work. This is a guy who um, absolutely works outside his mandate as uh, attorney general. Um, We'll have uh, a few other of the community leaders around, some of the candidates who are running for office. Um, We're gonna have a few surprises. We're just gonna see what happens. It's gonna be a great time. I hope you can join us then. Thanks so much for being with us. This has been uh, another edition of Making Action Happen with Action 22 on the Voice America Network. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your host, Sarah Blackhurst, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.